Hey, I would love for you to open up in a Bible. If you need one, there should be one in a seat rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible with you. We're in the first chapter of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. It's about three quarters of the way into your Bibles. If you need help finding the page number, the table of contents is always your friend. I uh, just want to just get a couple of quick details. Uh, tonight, uh, uh, many of you have RSVP'd and you're coming. Uh, we're we're going to try to start serving our meal at 510 sharp. So coming, the door's open at 445, come by 5. Um, if you didn't RSVP, uh, unfortunately, then it's full. So uh, pray and sign up, early next, sign up earlier next year. <laughs> Uh, it's it's going to be a full night, and it's exciting. But do pray, bless, you know. Uh, we'll have other opportunities, uh, Christmas Eve in a few weeks, to also celebrate Christmas. Um, so we're actually going to listen. Uh, we're going to experience a different way of a scripture reading today. We're going to play a, a song that sets the genealogy of Jesus. So help! I hope this song helps you appreciate what Matthew has in Matthew 1, verses 1 and following. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar, Perez he brought Hezron up and then came. Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who is then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam. Followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. Amen. Uh, In 1868, a 33-year-old young clergyman In Philadelphia, he picked up his pen and he wrote these lines. We sang them earlier. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, 
the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And so what Philip Brooks does in this song is he ties the mixed emotions or these, these mixed ideas of the feeling both of our lives but also of the arrival of Jesus Christ, right? We're supposed to see the, this everlasting light amid dark streets. There's the weighty fears beside deep hopes. And, and so, yes, on one hand, Philip's in his song is giving information about the birth of Jesus Christ, but it's, it's not just educational in nature. Like, it's meant to stir affections. He's opening, like, the, the, the book that the, there's this new chapter in the greatest story ever written, and we're moving to its climax. Tension is rising, resolution is nearing, and the story's hero is about to be born. Now, believe it or not, an ancient Israelite read Matthew's genealogy more as a song than a list. And that's partly why Andrew Peterson's song is so helpful. Like, when they saw this genealogy, when they saw this writer tying all of the sinners and saints, heroes and heroines of history together, like, they're hearing the background music. They're hearing the tension rise. Like, this story that's been going on for centuries is reaching a place that we have been longing for. That's why Phillips Brooks said it this way, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So I want to walk through this opening genealogy, and I just kind of I want to bring home three maybe attitudes, feelings, responses that we're supposed to have when we come to this genealogy. And the first idea is we're going to just marvel at God's story. Second, we want to see Christ as the climax, and then in the end, we want find your part, find your part in this story. So looking at this, and it's a whole lot easier to see it if you're looking at it. So again, I encourage you to keep your eyes on the text with me. The first idea, I just want us to marvel at God's story. And so if you even just look in your Bibles, most English Bibles will do this for you helpfully, is you will actually see that verses 2 through 6 is one epic of the story of God's salvation. And then then in halfway in verse 6 all the way to verse 11, it's like epic number 2. And then episode 3, the epic leading to the birth of Christ, is verses 12 through 16. Now, Matthew has carefully crafted these, these sets of stories to kind of make our hearts sing. And so, if you look at that, I'll just make a couple of observations in each of the epics. In epic 1, we, we need to see the, the significance of Abram, Abraham... As well as I want to talk about four surprising women in the first epic. Uh, first, we mentioned this last week. Uh, when Matthew starts the story, when he starts the genealogy, he starts with Abraham. Now, he could have started with Adam. In fact, if you look at the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually gets to Adam and says this all starts back with Adam. But Matthew is intentional about saying that this story of God's saving work, it, it's going to start here with Abraham. 
I, I often see him as the first train car in the chain of the salvation that God is going to do. We mentioned a little bit last week, Abraham is significant because before God came and chose him and called him to follow him, right under the world at that time, there was curse and there was exile, there was abandonment, there was loneliness, there was disunity, there was destruction. And he comes to one man, says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, eventually all the peoples of the earth. And so Abraham is this front car in the train of salvation. But in this first epic, of, of, you know, most scholars will say, this is strange because he calls out four different women. And it, with, each of these women has uh, what you might call a, a, a shady past. Uh, if you have time this week, um, Google it, pull out a Bible dictionary, and, and look at these four women. Reread their stories, the story of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, who is Bathsheba. By way of summary, each of these women symbolize God's saving purposes in unlikely, if not horrific, situations. The first one mentioned is a woman named Tamar. Tamar is a childless, widowed woman rejected by her own family. And yet in God's unique providence, a child is born. It's a salvation for her own life, but it ends up being a one in the line of the genealogy leading to Christ, the salvation of the world. It mentions Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. And at the time when she first appears in the story of the Bible, she, like all the Canaanites in Israel's promised land, is actually an enemy under God's judgment, deserving to die. But she turns away from her pagan past. And her pagan neighbors, and she puts her hope in the God of Israel, and she is saved. And is Jesus' great, 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 grandma. Then there's this mention of Ruth. Ruth also is not an Israelite. She is a Moabite. She's a Moabite, and when we when she comes onto the stage in her story, she's quickly a widow. She's a widow in a widow's house. And so you have this destitute, starving Moabite woman in, the, in her mother-in-law's house with no hope left where they are. And so they go back into the land of Israel, hoping of all hopes that they might yet survive. And she meets a man. And they get married. And she too is in the line of the Christ. And the last woman, which I don't even know why Matthew did this, he doesn't even name her. He, Matthew names her husband. Why? Well, Uriah, who's Bathsheba's husband, Uriah married this woman, loved this woman, was a faithful soldier, soldier of Israel. And King David wanted Bathsheba, and he takes her, he sleeps with her, he commits adultery with her. She gets pregnant, and to cover up his shame, he tries to get Uriah to come back from the front, go home and rest with his wife. And Uriah is too righteous to do that. While the other Israelites are out fighting, how dare he take comfort in the arms of his own wife? And so David no longer has an escape other than to have him murdered. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. 
And even in that story, God is tying stories of forgiveness and salvation out of the ugliest tragedies and the most abominable sins that you can imagine. So that's that first epic. It starts with Abraham. It goes through the story of, of tragedy and, and even sin. And it, it gets to David. And then there's this turn into the second epic, epic that goes from King David to the exile. Now, those of you who are good Bible scholars will know that it, not every king is actually mentioned in this epic. Right? Matthew is selective. He's giving an illustrative list of the kings of Israel from the time of David to when Babylon comes in 586 B.C. and brings judgment on Jerusalem and sends Israel packing into the land of Babylon. But of the list, let's just note a couple of things that are interesting. Uh, it's all the royal line of Jesus. So it's, it's part of why Matthew puts them there is to, for everyone to know that Jesus is of the royal line of David. Uh, but in that list, you have people like proud kings like Rehoboam, humble kings like Josiah, middle-of-the-road kings like Uzziah. Because God's people are always a mixed bag. You knew that, right? You probably noticed that when you walked in this sanctuary this morning. This is kind of a mixed bag of folks. And I was talking to a woman, uh, not here this morning, but she's coming tonight to the dinner and she's like, Matt, is it okay that I'm coming to eat with your church tonight? And I said, well, if they'll let me in, if they'll let me in, they'll let anybody in. Because we're all a mixed bag. But that's part of the storyline of God's redemptive person, persons, that even in the royal line, they're a mixed bag, sinners and saints. But, as the song mentioned, <laughs> uh, due to sin and lying and treachery and idolatry, this second epic ends with Israel exported out of the land under judgment and in exile. And, and that third epic, it just, it just describes that in many ways, exile continued. I mean, I don't know if you caught that. Uh, it lists a, a series of people that, uh, that fall from 586 to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. Again, this, this is an illustrative list. It's not exhaustive. There's, there's generations left out. Uh, but what's going on is, it, even though, those, this is a, you, those of you who know your Bible history, that even though Israel was exiled and put in Babylon, and eventually were able to return under an, an edict of a Persian king, uh, even though Israel came back at uh, 5, what is it, 26 B.C. or so, something around there, they never really come back. What I mean by that is, they're always under some neighboring superpower. From the Babylonians to the Persians to the Medes to the Greeks to the Romans, they still remain a subjugated people for all of those centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. Exile has not ended. The judgment over God's people has not gone away. It lingers so much so that those of you who know the history leading up to Christ and around the time of Jesus Christ, there's different upstart uh, supposed messiahs saying, I'm now going to free us, and they all get decimated. But what I want you to just to see as we tell this story is that I want you just to marvel at it, that God is telling a story, and he's kind of inviting you in to see God at work, see his power, see his might, see him working through these different characters, bringing the story to a rising tension point. You know, when you read a good story, you appreciate the author. 
Uh, admittedly, two or three years ago, I actually wrote a letter to a woman named Marilyn Robinson. Marilyn Robinson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who lives in Iowa City. Her Pulitzer Prize-winning book is Gilead. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's in the library. It's about an imaginary town of Gilead, Iowa. But I wrote Marilyn Robinson a letter, and I said, hey, I appreciate your work. I've read actually all five or six of her great works. I actually just live to the north of you. Your thoughts about God and humanity and the world, they're really great. I would love if you let sit down sometime that we could have coffee and we could just talk. Do you know what I got back? Radio silence. <laughs> Here's the difference. If you marvel at God's story and the author of this story and you cry out to him, he responds. Like that's partly why scripture is written so that you might know him. And begin to call out to him. And he responds. Uh, just one scripture that I think of as I marvel at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Comes from Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things. Those of long ago. I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Remember what God has done. Remember his power and purpose to, to do what he plans to do. So what might this look like for you, for you this week? It could be as simple as you just getting up 10 minutes earlier Spend five minutes to begin your day reading God's story at some, any place in Scripture. You could continue here in Matthew, or you could go back to the Old Testament. Spend five minutes reading, and then just stop, and for five minutes, marvel, worship, pray, praise, thank God. If you're confused, tell him so. Others of you might take 15 minutes this week, and maybe just turn on some Christ-honoring music, and you could sing with it, or you could just, just listen to it and just... These stories that we sing, they retell the marvels of God, and it's supposed to stir our hearts. Uh, still, others of you might sit down with your spouse and your kids this week and say, hey, let's read the Christmas story together. And, and, and then maybe each one can respond to the story. What, what, what did this story mean to you? You could take my invitation, go read the four stories of these controversial women, and be like, whoa, God brings beauty out of tragedy, doesn't he, God? Or, doesn't he, Dad? Yeah. Marvel at God's story. That said, I want you to remember that stories aren't aimless. Right? Stories have plot and drama, character development. And one of the most crucial points of a story is its climax. If you miss the climax, you miss the story. If I were to tell you a story, hey, once there was this girl named Goldilocks, and she had this hair, and she went into this bear's house, and she sat on some chairs, and they broke, and they, she ate some porridge, they broke... And then she ran away. There's something missing in there, right? We're missing the bed. We're missing the bears showing up. We're missing seeing, you know, some angry bears about their little Goldilocks intruder, right? You need the climax to be like, put that together. What, what we have in Matthew, what we have really in the New Testament, is this emphasis that Jesus is the climax of God's story. And if you don't get the climax of God's story, you actually won't get the world. I mean, you wonder why there's so much confusion and purposelessness and depression and hopelessness. It's because a lot of the world has missed the climax of the story. You need the climax so that you can live your life. 
And that's just how Matthew describes Jesus because he says, in the midst of this exile, it says Christ is born. Or some of your Bibles will say Messiah is born. This is a a term related to the long-awaited heir, the long-desired king, the great promised deliverer. He is coming. We mentioned last week that Jesus is the collision of the biblical storylines of Abraham and David. Uh, He's this... He's the the hero, but I just want to focus on this idea of end of exile. Right? We're going to, we're just going to just meditate on this idea of exile, because exile on one hand is the literal exile that Israel experienced at the hands of the Babylonians that continues through other uh, major superpowers for many centuries. But but exile is actually one of the themes of the Bible. Just remembering back to the Garden of Eden is that God created a world that, that, that he loved and, and he wanted it to be shared and ruled with humans that he loved. But those first humans, they corrupted the world. They rejected God and they were sent into exile. They were sent east of Eden. Uh, from Genesis 1 uh, to, to, to all of human history, we're actually trying to get back to that place where God has a world that he loves and he shares it with humans that he loves. That's the end goal. And in the middle of the story, we have corruption, darkness, judgment, exile. So like Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden, God at one point removed the Jews from the promised land. Remember, in the Garden, Adam and Eve were meant to, to guard and care for this beautiful, vibrant place. They were reflecting God's image. Adam and Eve were to have children who would, would then see Eden cultivated and spread to the entire world. But Adam and Eve's sin and their kids' sin have derailed or seemingly derailed God's purposes. And then as we're seeing, years pass, God shows up to Abraham. And it sounds as if God's going to do with Abraham what he, what he hoped to have done in Eden. He's going to start with a people, and he's going to start with a place, and then the world is going to experience blessing. And yet, Abraham and his kin, they failed just like Adam and Eve and their kin. And that's why Israel's failure at their job leads to their judgment. They failed. They failed miserably. In fact, they were supposed to export good. Like They were supposed to export the light of the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. That's what, what did they export? You read through the Old Testament, the minor prophets, they just exported idolatry. <laughs> you know, in fact, sometimes the minor prophets are like, your idolatry, the way you're worshiping, like it's worse than your pagan neighbors. And so that's why God deports them into exile. And so one reason Jesus is the climax of the story is we once again have a human of God's choosing who is supposed to live a faithful life of goodness and blessing, and then he's supposed to transport that goodness and blessing to the ends of the earth. And that's why Matthew calls him Messiah. He is supposed to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. He's supposed to do what Abraham failed to do. And then as you read the, the gospel, you ask the question, well, did he succeed? And the answer is yes. Everywhere he goes, he brings blessing. The skin of lepers is cleared. Legs that don't work start to work. Ears that are stopped are open. Eyes that are blind now see. He is bringing blessing. He is exporting good everywhere he goes. 
The Bible has been hinting all along that human inability is so bad that their only hope is a divine Savior. And that's why God's Son has to come. But this is where the story turns. As those of you familiar with the story of Jesus Christ, everywhere he's going, he is succeeding where humans have failed. But the climax of Jesus' story is he actually takes the judgment that all the humans deserved. He didn't earn it. He didn't didn't need to die. He didn't need to be judged. He didn't need to go into exile. But Jesus willingly chooses exile. Jesus willingly chooses exile judgment. Later in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus summarizes his ministry when he says, the Son of Man, he says he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the middle of Matthew, Jesus says, this is my mission. I'm going to pay someone else's debt. I'm going to take someone else's judgment. I'm going to take someone else's exile. Which is why on the cross, what does Jesus cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus takes an exile he didn't deserve for the people who do deserve it. The climax of the story, you guys know what the term climax means, right? Some of you guys, when you were in English class, right, the teachers would draw this picture of this big triangle and then down and over. You guys familiar with this? A plot arc? Right at the beginning of the plot arc, it starts in a setting, and then you get introduced to characters, and there's this rising action, and there's conflict, and, and it gets to this point at the top. You know what's the climax of the story? The point of highest tension. Good job, you were paying attention. Uh, and at the climax, there's, there's you get to this side. There's there's rising action that or falling action, where the story starts coming together. Well, what's the, what's the climactic point in the story of Jesus Christ? It's when he droops his head and he's dead. That's where it's at. That's why all of his disciples went home. <laughs> End of story, another failed Messiah. But three days later, he resurrects from the dead. Finally, some human being that triumphs through death and through judgment. And on the backside of Jesus' triumphant resurrection, you know what he says? He says, you know, if you trust in me, you will be forgiven. If you trust in me that I died for you, you won't die for yourself. If you trust in me and what the exile I talk for you, took for you, you'll never be sent in exile again. And this is why later when the Christians are meditating on it, you have the Apostle Paul saying things like, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have Paul saying, we are ambassadors of reconciliations. Therefore, be reconciled to God. The climax hits with Jesus Christ. So see the climax. Marvel at the story. But let me get to our third application. Find your place in the story. So, uh, so unlike Snow White, uh, unlike Cinderella, the, what the, one of the major messages of Scripture is the, the story of God includes you. You're invited into the story 
Well, actually, you already are in the story. You're either a villain or a friend. Right? You're either a part of God's people, redeemed and a part of God's purposes, or you are enemies of God, still in your sins. Now, one of the reasons we looked at the different characters a bit in the stories of Jesus' genealogy is to help you see that God's redemptive purposes show up in all sorts of people. He can save a prostitute pagan. He can even redeem an adulterous king. Such people mark the family line leading to Jesus, and many such people will follow in the line of after Jesus' resurrection. Praise be to God. One of the, just a verse that is tucked away in, Paul, uh, in a letter to the Hebrews is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. It's, just a, it's one of those verses that maybe when you're reading through it, you just kind of see, like, well, that's nice, and you keep going. But I just want to linger over a verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. You need to hear this today. I need to hear this today. Hebrews 2.11 says this. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. One more time. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If you're, at any, if you're in any way like me, I have wondered if God has been ashamed of me. I felt shame. I don't know if it was legit. I don't, you can psychoanalyze me and talk about me later at your dinner table. But I, I, I grew up feeling shameful about a lot of stuff. But this verse is such a treasure. Jesus is happy, delighted to make you holy through his saving grace. And then he's not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. My older brother, I'm not sure he's so proud of me. Oh, Matt. But Jesus is like, oh, Matt. Right? Like he welcomes us because of what he has done for us. He receives us, he cleanses us, he restores us, and it's his delight to do so. And once he does, there's no shame or disappointment when he looks at you. Did you hear that again? When God looks at you and he thinks of you because of what Christ has done for you, there's no disappointment, there's no condemnation, there's no shame. We read some of the, story, the genealogy, we think, well, I wonder what Jesus thought about having Tamar as his great-grandma. And the text here says, not ashamed. Not ashamed. He's a happy, proud, big brother. In many ways, Jesus' anger is simply reserved for those who don't, they refuse to come. In fact, he, and at the same time, he is still patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but to come to a knowledge of the truth. So here's part of the good news today. This is, we use the term gospel, a gospel. Here's part of the gospel today. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. You can humbly bow and receive God's salvation through Jesus, or you can keep mucking it up on your own and stay under judgment. You know, they say misery loves company. I think Satan is happy to hold on to as many people as he can. He's miserable, and he would like company. (laughs) But God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So part of finding your place in God's story today is just to look around and say, 
I believe that God died, sent his son to die for me and takes me in happily without any shame. Uh, uh, and that's something you guys got to process on your own. I would also want to invite you that one of the questions you would ask to be a part of God's story is how can I be a part of God's redemptive purposes today? Remember that was his intention from the beginning is to have a people whom he would love in a place doing good. That continues today. He wants a people whom he loves doing good in the places he's called you to today. So what does that look like? Dads, if you believe in Jesus for salvation, what good can you do as a dad for your kids? So, or moms, how can you bring order and joy to your home? Uh, maybe get off the couch, turn off the TV, and play a game of hide-and-seek in the dark with your kids. That's a little bit of beauty, right? Uh, make it your ambition to double the amount of time or amount of the giggles in your home. That'd be a, I think God would be blessed with Double the amount of giggles in your home. That'd be a good December goal. Bring delight. Uh, some of you just need to uh, consider this. When you go to work tomorrow, plan to serve your workmates. Now, here's an easy way to do it. You can drive by Dunkin' Donuts and pick up a, do- a dozen donuts. That's easy. But that's actually not what I'm talking about. But you might need to do that. <laughs> I'm just talking about setting aside your big project to help the guy who is buried in behind, even though he doesn't deserve it. That's a way to be a redemptive presence in your office. Or maybe you should call that woman who got fired last year deservedly, but call her and ask, how is she doing? How are you? Find your place in God's story. But remember, don't think for a second, even though you're a part of the story, the story is about you. The story is about Jesus, <laughs> what he's already done, what he's doing now. Uh, what he's going to do when he comes back to rule this earth with all his people. But don't do know this. Your life matters. And Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. So how you treat your classmates tomorrow matters. How you clean up a mess. How you fold your laundry. laundry. Live your life as a testimony of Christ's mercy, greatness. The three points again. Remarvel at God's story. See Jesus Christ as the climax of God's salvation plan. And now if you put your trust in him. Be a part of the story. I'm going to close the story of one of my personal heroes. I've talked about her before. You get to hear about her again. Uh, One of my personal heroes is is a woman named Jan Whirling. Uh, Jan was a college athlete, married her college sweetheart, and then moved to Indianola, Iowa. They had their children. They coached sports. Uh, Jan supported uh, her husband, who had a long-time career as the athletic director at Indianola High School. But Jan herself was pretty low on the totem pole. Uh, she wrangled kids in middle school study hall. That was her job. Uh, for about a decade or so, in her 20s and early 30s, her life consisted of a typical American sur- suburbanite. She raised her kids, went to sports events, and did her job. But then God's story caught up with her. A few middle school students began to talk to Jan about Jesus, salvation, and the Bible. Then a few women her own age began to share with her about Christ's love and Christ's death. Jan would have told her that she had abandoned the Catholic Church years ago, but finally, at that time in her life, 20s and 30s, God came alive. She trusted in Jesus Christ. She put her hope in his climactic death and resurrection. And then her life began to change. She went to work differently. She raised her kids differently. She coached differently. She started a fellowship of athletes ministry for students. 
She loved misfits, loners, fools, and one day she loved me. Now, Jan died in 2020 due to complications of Parkinson's. A few months later, the Indianola softball team, they put a plaque in her honor behind home plate. That's the plaque. Home plate, go see it. Now, on the night of the commemoration, these were words read about her. Study hall supervisor. Random woman, random place, but a part of God's story. They wrote, they said, Tonight we would like to honor Jan Whirling. She has been a shepherd of Christ that is led by example. She worked for the Indianola school systems for two decades as volleyball and basketball coach and study hall supervisors before finding her true calling working for the State Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where she worked until she retired. In 1982, she surrendered her life to Jesus and lived his example until her death, devoting countless hours to athletes and youth in need throughout central Iowa, changing hundreds of lives. I'm one of them. She was known for her relentless optimism, best personified through her twin mantras, give them heaven and live in the dream. God's story caught up with Jan, then with me, and today I'm telling you the same good news. Christ died to save sinners. He's the climax of God's story, a story that is still being written, and I encourage you to find your place in God's story. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful to just marvel at this genealogy and just the story that's been written. And uh, as it touches lives, is being written again uh, in study hall rooms and in people's living rooms and in workplaces. And in, I'm thankful that you use us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Thank you that uh, we've been created now in Christ Jesus to do good works in front of us. And so we marvel and we we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. And in your name we pray. Amen.